Chapter 8. Claiming Your Voice The poet Mary Oliver lives at the tip of Cape Cod, a realm of sea and forest that has served as her teacher and muse. From this place, she shows us through her poems what we miss as we drive to work in the morning or fill our evenings with television programs. Consider, she says, in The Fawn, what real holiness is through a chance encounter with a newborn deer on a Sunday morning. Listen, she suggests in Wild Geese, to the invitation to authenticity in the cry of geese flying overhead. Oliver discovered her voice early in life, once telling an interviewer, I decided very early that I wanted to write, but I didn't think of it as a career. I didn't even think of it as a profession. It was the most exciting thing, the most powerful thing, the most wonderful thing to do with my life. And I didn't question if I should. I just kept sharpening the pencils. As a teenager and into her 20s, she lived for lengthy periods of time at Steepleton, the home of the deceased poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, a young companion to the poet's sister, Norma Millay. She attended college for a while, but then she began expressing the poet's voice she had discovered and started to write. She published her first poetry collection, No Voyage and Other Poems, in 1963. Since then, she has published over a dozen collections of poems, plus several volumes of essays in which she frequently writes about the process of writing. She has received numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award for Poetry, and the Lenan Literary Award. In her poem, The Journey, Oliver describes the process of claiming our voice, stepping into action to do what we know we must do, despite our doubts and the critiques of others. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. That kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Mary Oliver is a leader who exemplifies the process of claiming our voice and using it to work for the common good. While a vision holds the promise of a preferred future, the promise is not enough to manifest that future. The vision needs to be put into action through the leader's voice. In this way, leaders exercise their commitment to the vision and become doers of their dream. Claiming voice is thus a critical step in the entire seven practices of common good leadership. Without voice, even the most finely crafted vision, grounded in principled values and holding the potential for furthering the common good, may never come into being because no one breathed life into it. Voice refers not only to the words we use, but to the full range of our behavior. Most people enjoy some modicum of intellectual, moral, economic, social, and political capital. 
how leaders choose to use these resources, as well as other gifts, defines the particular expression of their voice and the type of leadership they bring to the common good. For artists such as Mary Oliver, their art form, whether it is writing, theater, film, dance, sculpture, painting, or music, becomes their voice to change our hearts and minds. In this way, artists engage in the type of leadership called transforming leadership, discussed in chapter 3. Pablo Picasso painted the mural Guernica in response to the German and Italian warplanes bombing Basque Country in 1937, and as a prophetic warning about the destructive power of modern technology. In his 1949 Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller invited his audience to take responsibility for their values before the world seduced them into focusing their lives on trifles. A decade later, folk singer Pete Seeger's We Shall Overcome, his adaptation of a gospel song popular in black churches of the 1800s, stirred the hearts of nonviolent protesters not only in the U.S. civil rights movement, but in groups worldwide. Voice imparts an emotional resonance in other forms as well. Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice manifested as compelling oratory. Thomas Jefferson's preferred mode of expression was highly crafted prose. Mahatma Gandhi touched the population of an entire subcontinent through his fasting and other acts of nonviolent protest. Harriet Tubman spoke with her feet as she led others to their freedom along the Underground Railroad. The power to move and inspire others derives from the authenticity of the leader's voice. Whatever our vision may be, whatever action we are determined to undertake, our effectiveness as leaders is galvanized by our willingness to express our authentic selves. Our voices as expression of our authentic selves are shaped by the totality of our life experiences. Yet, our traumatic experiences, as well as the experiences of being marginalized, seem to shape our voices the most. As illustrated by the following story, in December 1984, a 13-year-old hemophiliac named Ryan White was diagnosed with AIDS. Having acquired the virus through a blood transfusion, this young teenager became the target of ill-informed fear-mongering, enduring threats of violence, social isolation from his peers at school, and homophobic epithets, such as, we know you're queer, from people on the streets of his hometown. Through these challenges, however, Ryan White found his voice. He became a spokesperson for the AIDS community, appearing on national television and participating in public benefits supporting children with AIDS until he died in March 1990, only a month short of his high school graduation. Four months later, Congress passed a bill to provide support for uninsured and underinsured AIDS patients, known as the Ryan White Care Act. The importance of claiming our voice becomes evident when we consider what the world would be like if various leaders for the common good had not. For example, if Alexander Fleming had not pursued his vision of finding a wonder drug and discovered penicillin, 
or if the founders of the American experiment had never implemented their vision by writing the Bill of Rights. Whether our vision is big or small, we cannot know ahead of time the ripple effect that our voice may create, even long after we are gone. Thus, claiming our voice to act on our own vision may be of utmost significance to not only us, but society and our common future. The process of claiming your voice. For leaders for the common good, the process of claiming voice involves three steps, discovering their voice, expressing their voice, and using their voice to proclaim their vision. First, they discover their voice by determining which of many possible means of articulation suits them. Second, they express their voice by putting it to work, taking a stand on some concern and acting on it. Finally, they use their voice to proclaim their specific vision for change. Whenever possible, leaders proclaim their vision in the conducive environment of gracious space. But sometimes, advancing the vision requires presenting it in environments that are resistant or even hostile. Either way, by lending voice to their vision, leaders reveal it to a larger audience with the intent of making the world a better place. Discovering voice. Once leaders are committed to their vision, they must determine how they will express it by discovering their voice. The discovery of voice is directly related to finding a person's passion. Howard Thurman, author, theologian, and teacher, who believed that connecting with our passion is the most important thing we can do for the world, stated, Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come most alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. A sense of exhilaration is present when someone draws close to their passion. As Mary Oliver said about her writing, it was the most exciting thing, the most powerful thing, the most wonderful thing to do with my life. In this way, discovering voice is closely related to discovering vocation, the work we are called to do. Ideally, our vocation is a blend of the work that fulfills us and the work that uses our unique talents for the betterment of the world. Frederick Buckner, author and theologian, says in his book, Wishful Thinking, A Seeker's ABCs, that people discover their vocation at the intersection of their own great happiness, their passion, and the world's great need. When leaders discover voice at this intersection, they are in touch with not only their authentic selves, but also their core values and their vision, and through the vision, their experience of the margin. How does a leader discover his voice at the intersection of his passion and the world's needs? One way is through engagement within the world. A teenager might discover a passion for teaching while working with young people at a summer camp. Mary Oliver confirmed her poet's voice by volunteering to help organize Miss Millay's papers. Travel has opened the eyes of many to their passion and calling. Gandhi, Bono, and Princess D were each deeply stirred by seeing unmet global needs firsthand. Sometimes, a person is led to his passion through his work. Vandana Shiva 
trained as a scientist, and now serving as a leader in the green movement in her native India and globally, found her vocation as a champion for change and global food production on a new job assignment. In an interview for the March 2002 issue of Life Positive, a magazine focused on holistic living, when the reporter asked Shiva when she made the switch from research to activism, she replied, The Ministry of Environment invited me in 1981 to study the effect of mining in the Dune Valley. As a result of my report, the Supreme Court banned mining here in 1983. That was the first time I was doing something about conservation professionally. It was not just an analytic engagement divorced from action or consequences. And I found it so fulfilling to work with communities and make a difference to society. I cared enough about the environment to really see it saved, and I knew that research by itself would not do it. Other times, a person is guided toward his passion through feedback from others combined with an honest assessment of their skills and talents. A parent might support a child's development of innate gifts in athletics, or a spouse might help a partner see that she enjoys working with the elderly more than accounting. Early in my career, I was drawn to the power and prestige of senior leadership roles in higher education. But by listening to feedback from colleagues and supervisors, I eventually discovered I was a teacher and activist at heart. In addition, a leader may discover his passion by observing someone else's calling, seeing a doctor provide comfort in an emergency room, or a teacher touch the heart of a child, or an elected official sign a bill into law can introduce individuals to their own vocation. Further, through meditation, people can be guided by spirit toward a vocation. When seeking discovery through meditation, it is helpful to have a trusted ally or spiritual director who can help us interpret the subtle messages of spirit in the context of our vision and life. Whether by those or other methods, the discovery of voice will happen for those who seek it. Leaders who have done the work of discovering their voice can then do their work in the world without fear of burnout. They are sustained by a passion that comes from the core of their being and the conviction that they are pursuing their true calling. Expressing voice. Once leaders discover their voice, the next step is expressing it. We express our voice by taking action, such as by stepping into our own vocation as when a poet faces a blank page and actually writes, or when a teacher stands in front of a classroom for the first time and delivers a lesson. The key to taking this step is simply to begin, realizing that beginnings are never perfect. At first, expressing our voice might feel awkward and ineffective, like a child scratching out her first notes on the violin. Each time we practice expressing our voice, however, we gain in skill and confidence. For a leader, taking action is about commitment to the vision, having the courage to give it energy, even before knowing whether it will be heralded or critiqued. Leaders expressing voice realize what they have to do and act on it. The Scottish explorer W.H. Murray comments in his book about his expedition to the Himalayas. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always in effectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth 
the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Once we are committed and have crossed the threshold into action, everything shifts. Our dormant potential becomes activated and another conscious voice is unleashed into the world. In addition, spirit moves to greet those who venture forth, supporting and their daring commitment through unfathomable coincidences that afford practical support. As a result of audacious actions and the fruitfulness of spirit's generosity, the day comes closer when the common good worldview is fully established. Expressing voice may mean taking a public stand about something that needs to be done to move our vision forward. For example, Martin Luther, 16th century German leader of the Reformation, through long hours of contemplation, concluded that God must be a source of love and grace rather than the wielder of law and judgment as taught by the church in his day. When he offered this insight to the world, he was not looking to be a change agent or a martyr. When the church leaders challenged him to recant his teachings, however, he realized that he could not. He famously is attributed with saying, Here I stand, I can do no other. Often, expressing voice means taking action that others might be avoiding, such as raising an important yet difficult issue in an organization or community. Even coordinating a meeting or rally to inspire group action. Taking such action includes addressing the practical details of when, where, and how to accomplish this. For example, if a rally is being planned, it is necessary to figure out who will get the permit to march and who will alert the press. When a leader expresses her voice, her own internal doubts, as well as criticism from others, are sure to show up. She may also feel thwarted by social and political influences, such as a narrow view of gender roles, expectations of professional decorum, or political oppression. Sometimes, internal questioning can inspire us to shift course slightly, or critiques from others can be good advice. Determining when to listen to doubts and criticisms, and when to listen to our personal passion, values, and vision, involves third-circle choice-making. Yielding to critics simply to please others belongs in the second circle of choice-making. What will the neighbors think? Authentic voice, on the other hand, puts down roots in the third circle, where leaders are guided by principle and a commitment to what is good for all. Leaders for the common good express their voice boldly, but not with rigid devotion. Grounded in the third circle, they become like willow trees, deeply rooted in soil. They can take a solid stand, but also remain flexible, able to bend in response to new information that may assist them in further refining their vision and purpose as they move into action.
using voice to proclaim the vision. Once leaders have discovered and expressed their voices, they use it to publicly proclaim their vision of a specific change in a particular corner of the world. What a leader does when proclaiming her vision is summed up in the phrase, speak the truth in love to power. Popularized by professor and activist Cornell West, this phrase, which has been the hallmark for many action strategies to advance justice, offers a bare bones formula for proclaiming a vision through voice in ways that model the common good. First, using voice to proclaim a vision means publicly speaking the truth of that vision. The vision's truth is contained in the three elements of its inception, the problem that needs addressing, what is, the moral and other reasons why a change is needed, what ought to be, and the change that offers the solution, what could be. It is natural to begin with naming the problem, describing what is. Publicly declaring an injustice casts the light of collective awareness on it. Calling the injustice out of hiding, putting the perpetuators on notice, and pointing out the costs of blindly clinging to the status quo. Thomas Hardy, English poet and author, said, If way to the better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. Often, being made aware of a situation of suffering, limitation, or lack is enough to convince listeners to join the effort for change. For example, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle in 1906 to expose the inhumane working conditions in the U.S. meat packing industry. For seven weeks, he worked undercover in the industry and reported on the gruesome conditions his fellow workers endured on a daily basis. His informed descriptions exposed these appalling practices to the light of day, leading to government regulation of the food industry. Stating the moral and other reasons for a change highlights the gap between what ought to be and what is. Listeners not motivated by the problem alone may find the moral argument, the oughtness of the situation, serving as their wake-up call. Finally, giving voice to a change that offers a solution, what could be, stirs the imagination of those in the community who enjoy bringing the possible into reality. Together, these three acts of truth-telling lay out the vision for others to see. Second, the truth should be spoken in love. When leaders take action to bring about change, the natural response is to perceive anyone who resists such change, especially those in power, as malevolent. It is especially difficult to remember love when we experience the power of the opposition and our instincts urge us to fight back. Thus, it is all too easy for reform leaders to slip into the very us-them mentality that perpetuates the problem they hope to address. Special attention is required to engage the opposition from a standpoint of love. Love is the force that moves us past the divisiveness of us-them thinking and into the inclusiveness of the third circle, where work for the common good 
can be done. According to poet Edwin Markham, cited on page 36, we draw the opposition into the third circle with us. Michael Edwards, a senior fellow at Demos, a public policy institute, describes love as active, not passive, explicitly considering the effects of oppressive and exploitative systems and structures on the welfare of others and not just focused on the immediate circle of family and friends. A deep and abiding commitment to the liberation of all. The goal of speaking the truth in love, then, is to advance change in a system while maintaining respect for those who are a part of the system, convincing them to halt the wrongdoing by reminding them of their own capacity for compassion and goodness. Seeking justice with love becomes a social force that transforms both systems and the hearts of those who hold power in the systems. Mahatma Gandhi called this force, which was the driving principle behind India's nonviolent movement for independence, Satyagrara, literally truth force. Martin Luther King Jr., having studied the nonviolent practices of Gandhi, integrated these teachings into his own work, calling it soul force. He believed nonviolence to be the most powerful force on earth because it has the power to turn an enemy into a friend. A stunning example of the power of soul force in addressing injustices is seen in the life of the late George Wallace, who, as governor of Alabama during the civil rights movement, was a vigilant guardian of segregation. Later in his life, while campaigning for the presidency, he was shot by a white man and spent the rest of his life racked with pain and confined to a wheelchair. His personal suffering opened his eyes and heart to the suffering of others and inspired him to embrace inclusiveness. On March 10, 1995, the 30th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery Civil Rights March, a repentant George Wallace arrived at the celebration to show his support. Joseph Lorry, one of the black organizers of the event, offered these words as greeting. You are a different George Wallace today. We both serve a God who can make the desert bloom. We ask God's blessing on you. Wallace told those in the crowd who had marched 30 years earlier. Much has transpired since those days. A great deal has been lost and a great deal gained. And here we are. My message to you today is, welcome to Montgomery. May your message be heard. May your lessons never be forgotten. Opportunities to engage an unjust system in love are available everywhere. We all live and work within systems, structures, and institutions. Most of them do not have an evil intent, yet all of them are capable of doing harm. Corporations strategically keep employee hours under 40 per week so that they do not have to pay benefits. Police departments engage in unconscious racial profiling. Neighbors use chemicals on their lawns, not realizing the runoff is polluting a nearby lake. Children are bullied on school playgrounds. A gas station does not dispose of used oil properly. Or a supervisor mistreats women. 
Each of these scenarios creates an opportunity for a leader to practice using her voice to proclaim her vision of what could be. Always the goal is not only speak the truth, but to do so in love. And it is not always necessary to act alone. Other concerned people, parents, neighbors, or co-workers are often willing to use their voices to support a vision. Third, speaking the truth in love is most effective when addressed to power, to those holding the reins in the system perpetuating the status quo. While it may be easier to talk about the system's failings with peers than to speak directly to supervisors or bosses, talking about those in power in the parking lot or at the water cooler is not likely to bring about the needed transformation. Yet many individuals stop short of addressing those in power directly because it can be dangerous. People in institutions who speak unwelcome truths, even if they do so in love, risk being branded as troublemakers. And troublemakers are often not promoted and might eventually be terminated. Community change agents similarly risk being denigrated or having their demands denied. When speaking directly to power, leaders for the common good engage in all four cornerstones of leadership for the common good, justice, care, inclusiveness, and moral urgency. Committed to justice and the fierce urgency of now, they seek immediate change in the system. They articulate clear demands and explain the lengths to which the disenfranchised are willing to go to achieve change, as those in power see that their current path is more costly than risking reform, whether economically, politically, or personally, they eventually comply willingly with the interests of the people. Committed to care and inclusiveness, leaders aim not to belittle the authority of those in power, but rather allow them to assume a principled orientation to the world while saving face. Such an invitation to a third circle orientation awakens the moral sense of the resistance. While speaking the truth directly to those in power can effectively advance social change, sometimes bringing change to the system doesn't require it. Some leaders for the common good simply innovate, creating change regardless of the people in power, thus speaking to power more indirectly. For example, when the banks would not set up loans for poor village women, Muhammad Yunus gave out loans himself and eventually created an entirely new kind of bank designed for micro-lending. The decision to circumnavigate power can also be seen in the recent green and organic movements, which affect change largely at the grassroots level. In response, those in power must move in the new direction people have chosen, often running to keep up with the reform if only to maintain the market share or get reelected. Finally, sometimes we ourselves are the people in power who resist change. We may know global warming is happening, yet still drive our cars whenever we want. We may realize the need for less divisive politics, yet disparage those on the other side of the aisle. We may be fully aware of ecological concerns, yet still use plastic bags from the grocery store. As Walt Kelly's comic strip character, Pogo, famously said, 
We have met the enemy and he is us. Difficult as it is, we also need to speak the truth and love to ourselves. The key question for a leader for the common good, am I in the third circle, takes on new aspects when his intention is to claim his voice. While considering how to express his voice, what actions to take, the question, am I in the third circle, becomes, are my intentions good, clear, and in line with my vision? While engaging in action, the question may mean, am I speaking the truth rather than wavering from it because of internal or external pressures? Am I committed to engaging those in a position to make a difference? Am I able to approach power while maintaining love in my heart? Am I able to invite the status quo into the third circle? What if all people were inspired to claim their voice? Imagine a land where all people are inspired to claim their voice and do so with authenticity and moral clarity. Each voice discovered, expressed, and used to proclaim a vision for the common good has great power. Like a river that shapes deep canyons or broad fertile plains, it can shape the future. When these voices flow together, the resulting confluence is a movement for the common good whose power is irresistible. Exercises. Discovering your voice. Discovering your voice can take the form of reflection on questions that have the power to stir you. The following questions are a starting place for meditation to discover your voice and vocation. If you knew you could not fail, what would you be willing to try? What work do you find enthralling? What could happen in five to ten years if you continued doing that work? What legacy do you want to leave behind? What work of justice are you utterly convinced needs to be accomplished in the next decade? What global need captures your heart? What creative response can you imagine leading? What do you want to say to the world with your life? What work makes you happy? Expressing your voice and proclaiming a vision. Step one, identify a concern you feel passionate about and do one of the following. Write a letter to the editor of your local or campus newspaper. Prepare an outline for a speech you could present to an individual or group in a position to make a difference if persuaded by what you say. Write a poem, song, or short story that expresses your passionate concern. Start a group or movement that will give collective voice to your passion. Think of a creative act of nonviolent civil disobedience that will draw attention to your concern. Consider doing an end run around the status quo and innovate a new creative alternative to satisfy your passion. Step two, gather with one or two close friends and share one of the ideas listed above, asking for constructive feedback. Step three, perform three actions to take your voice public. Reflection questions. What is your passion? Who or what is giving you bad advice and asking you to play it safe? What will inspire you to move past the voices that would keep you from fully claiming your voice? 
what first three steps could you take? Of those three steps, which one will you take today? What can you do to ensure that your voice is and remains nonviolent?